Memento Civitatum is the first artist's book to be commissioned by the National Gallery of Ireland, created by Alice Marr and Jamie Murphy. The book is an artistic response to the archives of six well-known artists who lived through the Irish Revolutionary Period. So what were the concerns of the citizens of the Revolution and are there parallels to be found in Ireland today? With me to discuss that and other matters are Alice Marr, uh, visual artist and book artist Jamie Murphy. Um, it seems extraordinary that this is the first Memento Civitatum is the first artist's book commissioned by the National Gallery. Um, how, how did it start off or how did it come about, this particular commission, Alice? Well, um, the National Gallery were having an exhibition about the archives of these six artists. So they approached us to make a book in a way in response to this archive and they wanted to commission a book as the first artist book to go into their into the national collection because there's a great history of artists of course making books mm. especially throughout the 20th century and the, the book artist is how you are certainly how I'm referring to you Jamie is that yes. a, is that a fair description and and does that mean that that's your sole focus in terms of your artistic practice it's certainly my primary focus and um you know it's a, it's a relatively new term um, throughout the 20th century, artists have been making books, but I think more recently, a lot of artists have been focusing on the book primarily as an instrument of art. So does this mean that it's not just about what's in the book and, an, and a nice design on the cover? There's much more going on than that. Exactly. It's the art as it's, it's the book as the art object. The idea of the binding and the paper and the ink, the printing, the structure, the format, the scale, all of those things combined to become um, a sort of a cohesive mm. object. So um, was, there a, was there an easy division of labour here, Alice, between yourself and Jamie? Very or? easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jamie and I worked together before. Right. We did a book together with the wonderful uh, poet, Jeremy Griefer, that yeah. you may have spoke to yeah. on this programme. And so we had worked together, so we we're very comfortable with that, you know, coll- collaboration together. So that didn't, you know, and Jamie's interest in typography for interest and the history of books and everything. And then my interest in imagery and in history and mythology also, you know, fed our relationship, our artistic relationship. Well, look, why don't we why don't we tweet one of the images and maybe we can talk about the division of labour within okay. the specifics of something rather than in a in a, in a nebulous type of way at RTE Arena uh, if you want to look at these images that we're speaking about I'm going to use action as my, my okay. starting point Yes Tell me a little bit Now the six artists were presented to, to you Alice obviously The six because artists Well we got into their hmm. ar- the archive that the ESB Centre for the Study of Irish Art collects what's called the ephemera of artists hmm. which means their letters their scraps their things stamps you know, stuff that you wouldn't see in the National Gallery yeah. you know, normally. Yeah. So we got the chance to dive into that. And so it was whatever we found in there and what we found relevant maybe to the way we think mm. today or what concerns us today, you know. So um, the one that you were referring to, which mm. one did you say? Well, the action. Action, action it, yeah. Aloysius O'Kelly. Yes, Aloysius O'Kelly. But also uh, that um, kind of figure that you see there with her hands in the air, you know, about to break mm. something on the ground. Um, I saw a print by Aloysius O'Kelly, which showed an eviction from North Mayo, you know, from where I live. And it was um, peasants repulsing, you know, repulsing the police who were trying to evict them, which is obviously re- very relevant for today yeah. as well. But also I am referring here to that kind of iconic photograph of Bernadette Devlin, and the Battle of the Bogside. Do you know that photograph? Yes, yeah, so she's see, breaking uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, we have it here beside yeah. it actually, yeah. so that you can yeah. see it. So what we have in the, in the image, or if you like, in your responses, is 
a tarot card image, uh, uh, generally a smaller image uh, within the, the Which rectangle. is a separate object yeah. and it's placed in the book there. You can actually take out that card. That's a separate so object. So it's actually a physical object it's that you It's a physical can... object. Ah, right. So. And so you might be interested how we came to work with the tarot cards. Well, I was wondering about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in our research, you know, in the in those archives, um, I, you know, would have been looking primarily at the imagery, let's say, and Jamie perhaps looking at the materiality that we found there. So in the imagery, I thought there was a lot of kind of imagery that to me looked like kind of medieval mm. or maybe pre-Raphaelite. If you look at the Kula Press, you know, their prints or Jack Yates's prints or maybe um, the stained glass figures, yes. you know, they have this kind of pre Raphaelite look. And I felt that that reminded me of what one might see in these old packs of tarot cards. So I went out and bought a pack and discovered that the woman who designed it, um, Pamela Coleman Smith, was actually a colleague and friend of both of the Yeatses and, you know, had actually worked on one of those broadsheets for Jack Yeats. And I thought, this can't be, you know, this is like too serendipitous (laughs) not to use it. So then this idea, of course, of card reading means that you use your imagination, you know, to kind of interpret politics, to interpret your own personal position. So we felt that that was a really good way of kind of imaginatively imaginatively joining the present and the past. Yeah, and of course, also, I suppose, within the tarot card, you have these kind of archetypes in some ways and, and, and even by choosing words like action you're giving you're, you're suggesting a type of person what do we know about Aloysius O'Kelly and how the, the words that you've chosen I think you chose the text that was your role in this Jamie the text that we see the words in different uh, type settings all around that Well Alice image. and I came together um, to to um, settle on the language that we use around mm. um, the book so the book is very language driven and um, when we were in the archives we could realise that <clears throat> a lot of the um, correspondence between the artists and their note taking were, you know, very language focused, and so tarot as a as a form of divination in one way is about reading and about interpretation, and that that was our sort of starting point in on this project was we started with the words, and so from those words we were able to build up these scenes, and if we come back to the action scene, um, the idea that words like change and activism ethics and protest. Um, They're very relevant to Mm. today as we go through various, from strife to strife, from (coughs) protest to protest. The idea of um, the action reading um, is very relevant, as it was back then. And so we were inspired by, yes, the the artwork of Aloysius O'Kelly and others, but also by their sort of their thoughts and their um, accomplishments and what they sort of stood for in their artistic merit. So it's not that this is particularly the the words of Aloysius O'Kelly. There there are lots of of the artists involved. These aren't the words of Aloysius O'Kelly. It's it's almost like each of the 21 readings that we have here in this book um, all stem from an energy that we sort of found within the work of Aloysius O'Kelly and Grace Gifford Mm. and William Orban and Jack Yates. And Sarah Cecilia Harrison. Who are the artists that, exactly, who were exactly, part of the exhibition that, exactly. that, that started the book exactly. off in the first place. So we used them very much as a starting point mm. to get to where we got here. I, Sarah Cecilia Harrison had one good shirt. Is this? Is this oh, no. Is this <laughs> I don't know if that's totally true. But <laughs> well, tell, us, um, they, tell us why Cecilia I would Harrison, be saying that. Well, she wouldn't be a very well-known artist until mm. very recently. Some wonderful scholarship by uh, Margarita Kapok actually this you know, kind of rediscovery of Sarah Cecilia Harrison. Sorry, was, I should say we, we'll tweet the artist now yes, at RTA Arena. Is a, for, that's the page for the arts uh, called The yeah. Artist. Yeah. 
So, and um, the image is of an artist wearing this particular striped blouse and holding her tools, you know, in her hands. Mm. And Sarah Cecilia Harrison was an artist. Uh, she was also the first woman councillor in Dublin. She was a real, she was a real activist and she was very interested in ecology, as a matter of fact. Mm. And she uh, suggested a motion to the council that trees should be planted, like, and she got money from Hugh Lane for 2000, you know, to get trees, to get them planted. So, I mean, there's her concern with um, with ecology is the, is a concern, of course, of people today. But Sarah Cecilia Harrison was not a rich person. She was a poor person. And that's what we discovered a lot in the archives mm. as well. You know, from, from their private letters, you could see what their concerns were, um, you know, about their poverty or, you know, things that they needed. And, and Sarah Cecilia Harrison, whenever you see her, a, in a portrait, a self-portrait, she's always wearing the same blouse. Wow. Yeah. So, this so that was her good blouse. <laughs> yeah, so that was said, what she used for her pictures. Let's this have the artist so with her one blouse. So yeah. that was your, that, that is your yeah. decision that she had the one yes. shirt. She may have had more, but the, the yes. one, that was the one she used for the photographs. Um, I wasn't surprised to see that there would be hair at some point along the way in one of the images. I'm looking now at Enchantment yes. um, at RTE Arena if you want to see a tweet of this particular image. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, it's not obsession, but the interest in hair is mm. has always been there for you, Alice. Yeah, well, the language of hair, you know, is quite well-known language, you know what I mean, that this stays and what it means politically for, you know, the creation of femininity and you see what's like the power of hair and the power mm. of the language of hair. You see it today in Iran, you know, where women are cutting off their hair, you know, as a symbol of something mm. that has oppressed them for having to cover their hair. Yeah. You know? So, um, of course, yeah, hair would play some part, you know, in these kind of iconic figures. So that figure of enchantment, her hair is like growing out like a great, you know, tendrils all around her. And it kind of mirrors what you might see perhaps in Celtic knotwork in very, very, very early books, you know, early Christian books. So all right. So you're picking up on that type of yeah. lettering yeah. that we might see in, in a book like the yeah. Book of Kells or something That's like right. that. That, yeah. that style. I can see now when you point that out to yeah. me, I can see the I can see the parallels there. And and the the words that you chose in and around this particular uh, image, why so, Jamie? Well, um the words um, relate to this idea of enchantment from the point of view of the citizen. <clears throat> so we were very interested in making a book here that um reflected our the idea of contemporary Irish society, very much so um in memory of what may have gone before us and remembering these artists mm. that were before us. So when we think of mystery and intuition and wonder, um, these are words that our artists would have been familiar with. But then we have new words such as fluidity in this mm. sense. And that's a very new word to our vernacular. And there was a bunch of new words that we brought into this um, book, such as the body politic, which again is uh, um, new to us. But then... Um, also, the idea of um, the, the reverse readings of a lot of these um, yeah. spreads here. So we have words like perfidy and haunting. And in enchantment, we have words like bewilderment and delusion. Yeah. And so each each of these readings has um, what could be seen as a positive, but also a reverse reading. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there are two sides to every story. Exactly. Um, very strong, uh, I suppose, if we want to look at something that would have a direct relationship to, to today. Mm. Uh, let's tweet dwelling uh, that particular image now at RTE Arena, if you want to follow these images as we're speaking. Um, occupation, shelter, housing, 
words from a hundred years ago and quite definitely words from now as well, yeah. Alice. Yeah, indeed they are. But, you know, there are things that concerned uh, the artists back yeah. then as well. Yeah. And, and you we, saw this in the letters. Yeah, and in, their, in, uh, in one of Aloysius O'Kelly's letters, as a matter of fact, he was worried about the price of coal. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he was worried about e, the New Ireland. You know, this was heating. He was, heating. And the, yeah. That's what would have been yeah. the, the but main But he even referred to it then. as the New Ireland then. Right. You know, and it was yeah. just like the New Ireland, let's say, after the Civil War. He didn't think he'd be able to afford a house here. And he was worried about his old age. And as a matter of fact, he ended up in a, in a home in the United States. That's where he ended his life, you know. Yeah. So. Incidentally, where did the title Me- Memento Civitatum, where did that come from? Well, Jamie, Jamie, that, Jamie well, mm. the title um, is uh, not a direct translation from the Latin, but it, in a roundabout way, it sort of encapsulates what we're trying to do with this book, which is remembering citizenship, remembering the citizen and what it takes to be a sort of a member of a community or a society. And mm. so... Um, but wasn't there an album? Well, we yeah, saw we came across this photo album from yeah. William Orpin's archive yeah. and... Um, as we've all come across albums with the word memento on, but memento being such a strong word, mm. we thought that this would um, mm. relate to the viewer of this book exactly what we're trying to do here, which is not just comment on society today, but also remember. All right. Well, listen, it's a fascinating project. And if people, citizens indeed will want to see this and anybody who would like to see it, uh, the work Memento Civitatum, along with the accompanying exhibition Roller Skits and Ruins, available uh, to visit and to see at the National Gallery of Ireland through until the 17th of September 2023. Thanks so much for coming in tonight, Case. Thank you. You're listening to Friday Night's Arena. As we know, the Russian war on Ukraine has put paid to regular visits from Russia's major ballet companies, but that does not mean we will be starved of ballet in all its classical pomp. On January the 11th, the Estonian National Ballet makes its first trip to Ireland in its 100-year history. And what show are they bringing? Well, the waltz that you've just been listening to gives you the hint. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake is, of course, what will be coming here. And I'm delighted to be joined this evening by the Artistic Director of Estonian National Ballet, Linar Luris. And I'm wondering, Linar, if, like myself, when you're listening to that piece of Tchaikovsky and the waltz and the wonderful swaying rhythm that it has, can you sit still in your seat or are you moving? Were you moving as you were listening? Well, hello to everyone from my side as well. I'm so excited that Estonian National Ballet has the pleasure of coming to Ireland. Well, Tchaikovsky's music, it's a classical piece. Of course, it makes you see dance. It makes you want to move. So, yes, uh, inside I'm dancing, not physically right now, but inside, of course. Yes, of course. And you were a dancer for much of your professional life. You had an international dancing career, but you took over the role of artistic director of the Estonian National Ballet three years ago. It must have been a kind of a homecoming. What, what, What prompted you in that direction? You know, as as dancers, our careers are not very, very long. So 
apart from musicians who can uh, hone their craft and play their instrument well into their late uh, um, part of life, I was always thinking what comes next after dance. And um, as you mentioned, I've had a quite successful international career and I started as a dancer. I started to teach and coach on the side too. And then an opportunity presented itself to take over the leadership. And, you know, I it's it's better to leave on the top, on the brink of your your stardom and not to fade away. So everything sort of lined up and I and I took that chance to lead the company. And I mean, it was a very, it has been tough time with COVID, but I think the company has risen to a new good standard. Our dancers are strong, repertoire is very, very good. And uh, I think we have something to offer to our local and international audiences. So things sort of pushed me to the right direction. And I was ready for that too. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to end up like, you know, end of your career, what do you do? Let me look around. So things just fell into place, I would say. Yeah, because you were a principal dancer with the, with the Estonian National Ballet in the earlier part of your career. You then moved to Houston Ballet in, in Texas for a period of time as well, where you were uh, for an important soloist, first soloist in, in that particular company. Even when you were dancing there as a young dancer, did you kind of have with some were the things rolling around in your head thinking, now when I'm in charge of the company, I'm going to do this, this and this, different from the way it is happening right now? And I would add, I had a little uh, one season in, in England, actually, Birmingham Royal hmm. Ballet. So another company I was a soloist for. So, you know, always as you as you dance, um, you know, you, you get inspired and you get um, you learn from the artistic directors, everyone you work with and the companies you visit and and sort of you gather the knowledge in general of what would you do, what is good and also what's not so good. So, yes, I, I learned from people in both in good and bad sense. I think people mostly learn from what not to do. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that is that is the easier um, thing in leadership and you know I have to tell you you know being a dancer I didn't so much you know understand the depth of what does it mean to be in front of the room um, as a leader and now I see it uh, a lot deeper and I can honestly say I I appreciate this job a lot more I understand but I also judge it a lot harsher mm. now because you know it's it's a tough job and people's careers are in your hands and you have to be honest be willing to have tough conversations then good work can happen and people you know can perform their best you you have to encourage we're there to support it's so easy to tear someone down but to lift people up to encourage them this is a new way forward um, the, the other aspect that, that I'm wondering about is the company itself, founded in, in 1913. So this is a company, the Estonian National Ballet, which comes, I presume, with a huge tradition within your home country. What kind of pressures did that put on you? Um, I, have to, I have to be honest, the pressure was more um, 
from the people that I used to work for, because the the company teachers, the staff, um, I mean, I used to work with them as a dancer. So I felt more pressure from them to to sort of like proving them that I am worthy and, and to take this organization forward to work with the dancers. I mean, it, the company has a, a very good and rich history. So I, I respect that and I didn't want to destroy anything to keep continuing that lineage to to keep it as a classical ballet company also bring in diverse works of story ballets to give our audience the best mm. that the local artists have to offer and the world too so i didn't so much feel the sort of you know 100 plus years of traditions more of like just the colleagues that used to coach me and now i'm sort of like in a way, coaching them. Yeah, and I guess it's one of the big differences. I, I'm, I, I presume as a dancer, your major responsibility is to yourself to look after your instrument, i.e., your body, and to push it to its limits and to keep it in the shape that you can continue to push it to its limits. As artistic director, you're answerable to everybody, and everybody wants everything from you. Yes, it's uh, it's uh, the perception changes and the focus changing from changes from one person to like the entire department of ballet. So it's around seventy five people. So it is uh, it is a little bit of an adjustment, definitely. But hey, it's um, it's just just the way things go. So um, and trying to be the best possible for everyone of course no leader regardless of the company and especially in a ballet company too you cannot please everyone but um in general you can do good work you can set uh, the good sort of rules we play by the values and then in general good work will happen there's always people that are you know, either don't want to work or or have a different view how things should be, or some are maybe sometimes too bitter, uh, too, and have unrealistic expectations. So trying to manage this and still bring the best out of artists, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're entertainers, inter entertainers. It's a hard profession, and we want to provide the best for the audience. If there was no audience, we wouldn't do this. Tell me then about how you're going to provide for the audience here in Ireland. It's a, a, the production of Swan Lake that you're you're bringing to us. Is it a very classical production of the piece? Does it explore new avenues? What are you doing in this particular uh, performance? So this uh, particular version was choreographed by the previous artistic director, Thomas Adur. He was also a um, famous dancer. He was a principal uh, with English National Ballet. So he created that version in 2016. A beautiful sets and costumes are done by Thomas Mika, a um, international designer who created a very clean version. Of course, it's a classic story. It is a classical ballet. It's not four acts. We combined it into two acts. So the audience gets still the best parts, the greatest hits of classical ballet, um, in particular the Swan Lake production. So we bring a, a classical story with nice, bright, um, 
fairly new costumes. Um, it's a beautiful set as well. It's not only a backdrop, which a lot of touring companies do. We actually do have a set, a beautiful forest pictures, uh, beautiful palace scenes. Um, it's, it's just, um, it's an all around um, sort of a good, classical story mm. it has this classical four swans little swans everyone knows the music and can hum it along um beautiful uh, most challenging classical ballet role main ballerina um, performs odette otilia mm -hmm. so this is white and black swan together um you have your famous pas de trois. you have everything all the character dances so it's a good love story with good characters and and beautiful dancing and, and i suppose there is something in we we think of the swan even when we mention the swan we talk about how elegant the swan can move across uh, the the first the surface of water even if there's lots of frantic activity going on underneath the water is there something similar in the way the swans are portrayed for, for by the corps de ballet here that there's an awful lot of physical activity happening but on the uh, maybe underneath and inside but on the surface we have to see absolute elegance of course it's so for us the surface is the upper body the head the arms the torso so it's to portray a swan you have to be very very fluid the movement has to mimic swan and underneath the all the audience will be able to see the legwork is precise it is fast it is it is something that takes a lot of uh, hours to practice it's not easy to just go and wave your arms and that's it you have to portray the emotion you have to give the story you have to look and act like a swan while being on point and doing these incredibly difficult moves on point and you know not falling off point so mm. it's um it's sort of trying to have this sort of human portray the most one of the most beautiful creatures in nature. Uh, one of the things that I know that the company is involved in uh, as well is this idea ballet mightn't have the place in the, in the national mindset, I suppose, here in Ireland as it would have, mightn't have the same prominence as it would have in somewhere like your home country and that particular part of the world. What is the initiative that you're involved with in, involved in potentially training a young Irish ballet dancer? Um, well, uh, ballet and dance doesn't really know any nationalities. So when an audience member looks at the dancer on stage, they really don't care where they're from, what their background is. If it's good dancing, good dancing is beautiful art to watch. So I'd say, you know, anyone in Ireland having um, an interest of becoming a ballet dancer, absolutely. I I would encourage that with the presenting company, with the presenting touring company, we actually also have the aspiring young dancer sort of, um, uh, how do you say, like, a, it's not really a raffle, but we do a little bit of an audition mm. so that the, um, the 13 to 17 year old young dancers can film themselves how they dance in a in a style of ballet and they get and the best one will get tickets to the show they have a chance to watch a performance from backstage they maybe get even the chance to present flowers to the main ballerina and perhaps even participate in a company class 
during wow. our season. So if somebody is, you know, aspiring uh, classical ballet dancer, I encourage them, you know, hmm. take a video of yourself, send it in. And, you know, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, give opportunities to the new generation. So I encourage, I mean, Ireland has, I know you guys have very good river dance. So there's, there's coordination. The people love to dance. So it's just a little bit of a different style, a little bit of a different schooling and training. So, hey, if you have people, I would encourage, try ballet. It's a beautiful, beautiful art form. I presume, uh, Leonardo, that the, the ban on rushing performing artists and arts companies has given you possibilities and opportunities that have not been there previously. Uh, well, um, actually, not entirely, because we have toured internationally before and have done it on a regular basis. With COVID, obviously, internationally, it was it was difficult for everyone. But since we are a repertoire theater, we're not your standard touring company. This is something that, you know, the conditions have to also work for us. We're not desperate of mm. getting a tour, but every time there is a respectable opportunity, we do take it and try to make it work. So we have international touring experience and Dublin is first for us. So therefore our excitement is tripled that we get to present such a demanding classical ballet. We get to travel internationally and we get to be in Ireland for the first time. And I, I can only imagine that the Irish audience is very warm, inviting and, and absolutely wonderful. So truly looking forward to that yeah. uh, experience. But as, as I said, we're, we're not somebody who's just going and, and all of a sudden filling in for, for the Russian companies that cannot tour. Yeah. So, and, and talking about these companies, the quality is not always the best. Let's be honest. No one really talks about this, but hey, Classical ballet dance, it has yeah. standards, so not all classical ballet is good. <laughs> the other thing that I, I, I found very touching and an interesting story was the way in which you have been supporting uh, Ukrainian artists. I know you have a Ukrainian, you recently hired a Ukrainian pianist, but you've also been help, helping in some ways with the war efforts. Tell me about the, the nets that were made uh, within your own ballet company and what these particular nets were and what they were for. So... Uh, Two things that we did, it's it, within our Estonian National Opera. So the costume and set department uh, built a special camouflage net. And then all of us singers, dancers, all the workers in the opera house were able to go and sort of tie these camouflage ribbons to it. And we did quite a few camouflage nets um, for Ukrainian soldiers. And also the costume department created the vests uh, for bulletproof like shells to be put inside. So we tried our best um, giving, giving cheaper tickets to anyone mm. who's affected by the war. So doing really our best in during these very difficult times. I mean, every, every theater financially struggles too. So we try to physically do our best that we can. And then everyone participated. And, and if you know that, you know, your handwork is going to make this, you know, war hopefully end faster, 
then hey, any way we can, we help. We do concerts. We 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 bring attention to the war. So any anything we can, we we did and keep continue doing it. Well, Linar, thank you so much for for joining us this evening, and looking forward to having you here in January, the first month of of next year. Thanks for being with us on the program tonight. Thank you so much and happy upcoming holiday season to everyone. And indeed to you, Linar, as well. Linar Loris, as I said, they're of the Estonian National Ballet and they will be performing Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake at the Borgosh Energy Theatre from Wednesday the 11th of January through until Sunday the 16th of January 2023. And you can get full information on the website, which is borgoshenergytheatre.ie. Creatures of the Earth, uh, Spoken Stories 2, continues this weekend on RTE Radio 1 Sunday evening with another news story, this time written by Keelan Hughes. Her story is called Flatland and Monuments and it's read by Maria Doyle Kennedy. The overall project title here, Creatures of the Earth, is itself the title of a story and indeed of a collection of stories by John McGahern. And each week, a writer considers what Creatures of the Earth might conjure up for them in a new story of their own. In Keelan Hughes' story, a mother who has limited custody of her children takes them out of school where she believes they're in danger from falling space debris. She then brings them to a remote shelter for the time being. About her story Keelan says that like McGahern's story Flatland and Monuments is about the attempt to cope with vulnerability and here the defence manoeuvre available seems to be one of eclipse. The reader here is as I said Maria Doyle Kennedy. Outside, the sky is wild, flecked in bark and feather. Crows take their pick of the twig scaffolding, then carry their body weight in Chinese fountain grass for bedding. The crows have high intentions. They land upon the nude winter tree line and bloom it. Inside the classroom, the children's intentions are being tested. They carry numbers down long divisions. Rowan Donovan scribbles dense biro nests over his errors. He doesn't want the numbers to splinter under his pen as they're doing. He wants them to be strict and convinced as they are on the clock. Biro casing crackles in his grip. More than once in Rowan's nine years, there's been an emergency. So he's allowed to have a phone. He takes it out beneath his desk to check his answer against the calculator app, but... A message from his mother's on the screen. Get your sister and go to the gate. Say that you're being collected. Say that tomorrow you'll bring a note. They're not meant to see their mother till Easter because of her behaviour. The fire steel and flint she'd strung on twine around their necks for wearing all the time, for readiness. The twenty miles she'd made them cycle, fast as they could, though she'd held her palm to Chloe's tiny back all the way. Rowan knows better than to text his mother to ask why, or to say about the test. He gathers his pens. On the way to the gate, Chloe chews her fingernails for the tangy nectarine rind buried there. Her nails still ache from peeling the tight orange skin, but the sweet, sharp taste is worth the ache. Her brother won't hold her hand anyway. Friends watch from the windows, taking bets as to what accident has happened but no one can guess about their mother because Chloe never explained. She never told anyone about their mother predicting the future and stopping it like a train. Exhaust smoke is coming from the car, 
but the storm is too loud to hear the engine. When her mother smiles in the rearview mirror, sweat glitters on her lip. She's not wearing nice clothes and her hair is stuck to her skull, but she still looks pretty. Rowan is on his phone. He doesn't feel it in his belly, the turns they've taken, the new roads they're on, so windy that Chloe tastes tangerine again. Rowan hasn't noticed that their mother is driving in the middle of the road. Perhaps it's to see around bends. Her chest is pressing the steering wheel so that it beeps, just to let them know we're coming, she says. These corners are so blind. But she isn't looking round corners. She's looking way, way up. Naturally, nothing. Morna mutes the radio. Not so much as a jingle of warning about the space debris that's on its faithless way. Maria Doyle-Kennedy there reading the opening section of Flatland with Monuments, a new story from Keelan Hughes from RTE's Spoken Stories 2, Creatures of the Earth. And you can hear the story in full at half past seven this Sunday evening on RTE Radio 1 Spoken Stories, Creatures of the Earth broadcast or indeed as part of the Spoken Stories podcast. The striking, empathetic and complex photographs of legendary Irish photographer Tony O'Shea documented changing Ireland over the last number of decades. For the first time in the exhibition The Light of Day, Photo Museum Ireland is showing a major retrospective of some of O'Shea's best-known work. In studio with me this evening is the curator of that exhibition, Trish Lamb, who's here to, uh, to talk about the specifics of some of the images, but maybe to shed some light on Tony O'Shea himself because he's not a man that likes to put himself into the limelight. He's a man of few words. He's enigmatic, which is why I'm here tonight and why Tony isn't here. He really doesn't like to speak too much about his work. He likes it to, to speak for itself. So he doesn't like to tie down the meaning too much. Mm. So he's quite an elusive character. Yeah, and well, he's a photographer, so he, he works he works in images. Uh, on the surface, if you look at these images, they seem like documentary photographs, don't they? Yeah, but they're 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 quite they're they're quite specific and nuanced in that they're street photographs as opposed to documentary. So Tony is actively trying to avoid, you know, being explicit about the meaning or the narrative in the pictures. So they're more rep- symbolic mm. or metaphorical rather than telling a specific story. So he's not telling the the story of that particular person on that particular street, which is why he often doesn't caption his work. He really is looking for the a sense of the epic in the everyday. Well, we're going to treat some of the images and we, we'll get a sense of what you mean by, by all of that, uh, Trish. Let's uh, put Dublin bus 1989 uh, up on at RTE Arena now. <laughs> This is a phenomenal picture. Maybe you describe what we're looking at first of all. Trish. So what you're looking at, and what, what's interesting about this? This is a really close-up picture of two young boys mm. on a bus, and it's almost like the photographer isn't there. He's that close, and also the boys are completely unaware of mm. his presence. And this is a picture that Colm Tobin has written beautifully about because there's something, there's a sense of magic realism. There are, what Colm Tobin has re- referenced spirit animals that come through often in Tony's picture. So you get the sense of the extraordinary in the ordinary and the everyday. So yeah. it's a kind of bizarre picture because it's a kestrel on a Dublin bus with, with <laughs> two guys. Just, it's two guys, um, one fella sitting on the, on the, I suppose, the seat in the foreground of the picture and up on his left hand is this kestrel. A very well cared for kestrel. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. And the the guy on the seat in front of him then is 
eyeballing, yeah. eyeballing the kestrel. Don't know if I'd be up for doing that, uh, eyeballing a kestrel in that fashion. And again, this is that magic <coughs> realism sense that, that Tony brings to his work. He's he's very interested in the ordinary, but he mm. often looks at ordinary life on the margins. And he really is looking at the spectacle of street life. Yeah, and you couldn't set this up. I mean, it would be too difficult. There's a kind of a naturalistic quality to the look in the two lads' faces. But yet, as you say, there's something They're quite completely <coughs> nonplussed. This is an ordinary day yeah. out for them with, with them and their kestrel on a bus, like yeah. you do. And it, it, that kind of idea, obviously, he, he must, did he take, does he, does he take a lot of photographs that are then abandoned till he gets the image that he kind of it, Yeah, he's not, something. and I think because Tony works in a very particular way, I mean, he was born in Kerry, but he's really, like, made Dublin his home, as mm. many artists do. So he goes back again and again and again to the same streets, to the same subjects over decades, and he's drawn to the same types of subjects. So in some ways they're chance, but they're chances that he creates through his persistence. So he's actually, you know, very open to things unfurling in front of him but they're not chance in that this is something that he's seeking. Yeah. It, it seems to me however there are certain photographs that suggest more of a documentary style at, at one level. Let's say, talk a little bit you mentioned Cullum Tobin there. Talk about his relationship with Cullum Tobin and particularly that book Walking the Border. Well it's interesting because you know it was very interesting to listen to Jamie and Alice earlier because for photographers the photo book is an art form in itself. Mm. And, and for Tony, that's been a really kind of important part of his practice. He learned photography and got into photography first when he was living in Japan. And there's a really strong photo book culture there. So for Tony, the, the, the book is a really important part of his practice. And he's been collaborating with um, Comptobin since the 1980s, did a book Walking Along the Border. Yeah. You know, and it's been produced with photographs and without. And he's collaborated with Colm again and again and again. He's written the preface for this, the essay for this, The Light of yeah. Day book. And I, I'm going to tweet two images that uh, deal with that, deal with border stuff, in in fact. Uh, the first one I want to tweet is of a group of men, uh, one particular chap standing up on a big lump of concrete, others watching him, and uh, another bundle with some kind of stick, trying, or a piece of wood, trying to move the big bit of concrete that's on the ground. We're talking about border roads here being blocked. That's the border roads and, and the attempts of the local <coughs> communities to reinstate those roads, you know, mm. and there's a whole series of this. And, and and with this, it's good to look at the entire series because there's something really kind of monumental about the work being undertaken by these ordinary communities. And in some of the pictures, it almost referenced the Black Pig's Dyke, you know, the, the, these large banks of earth. Yeah, the Black really Pig's Dyke being that kind of almost imaginary border. Yeah, um, you know, and, and, and there's something primitive about, it. you know, there's other ones of a, a man, an old man with his back to a crowd and a, and a small mm. crowd of people on a hill. And they really feel quite, they don't feel so much of than now but it feels like some kind of ongoing struggle. Well it's funny when I, when I looked at that one of the men uh, trying to move the, the concrete which had been had blocked the, the border crossing uh, it was almost like uh, you know the people on the on the, on the the ramparts in the, during the French Revolution it yeah. has that kind of epic quality His to it. His work has that kind of sense of the nowness but also almost a, of an ongoing struggle some of the work has quite a medieval quality to mm. it you know it, it feels quite primitive in some ways and very modern at the same time so that's that's what's kind of unusual there's that contrast in his work and then uh, at, at the same I presume the same period when he was down this is in Kilty Clahar in County Leitrim just on the border there between Sligo and Leitrim and Donegal that particular neck of the woods this is a we'll tweet a second image from that period as or from that spot as well. This is uh, at RTE Arena to see this image. 
a group of young girls. Young majorettes um, in full regalia. And, and this again is with Tony, you know, he, he brings quite a humanist approach to mm. his work, quite a concerned approach to his work. But there is also a sense of fun and they bring the sense of surreal to it too. So you've got these majorettes who were all geared up that if they had successfully opened the road, they were going to parade through. So this is a mark of success <laughs> of a border road, the border, the gift that keeps giving, um, you know, being successfully opened. And that's a really you know, that's a really important struggle for border communities to mm. maintain those roads. There are several images uh, uh, in, in the book uh, and in the exhibition, I'm presuming as well, Trish, of um, what I might call Republican iconography and Republican events. Yeah, I mean, he's photographed over and over again, you know, from the 80s and 90s onwards in a series called Never Forget. And and what's unusual about Tony's work and what's different to photojournalists, photojournalists are after the kind of the high point of tension, the spectacle of, of violence or whatever that is. Mm. Whereas with Tony, he's often within the crowds or on the margin. So his position and his vantage point is often unusual. So he captures something slower or quieter. So in this picture, you've got a group of RUC men overlooking a group of young, what would probably be Republican young boys, but all dressed up at at the edge of a funeral. And and another one that not quite the same uh, period, but uh, of a similar mode, I suppose, or political milieu, the 25th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Derry in 1977 at RT Arena to see this image. Yeah, it's a very poignant picture of two young girls and, and they've got, they've got careworn faces. They look older than their years. And it's a, in, like from a from a, a formal point of view, mm. it's an incredibly elegant and beautiful and compelling pictures. But it also highlights Tony's own concern about kind of the human struggle yeah, and, and, and life on the margins. I, and beneath that, in the, in the set of images that I have, there's an image from Bewley's Cafe. These are two women uh, uh, drinking tea or co- tea, I guess. Not two coffee. old ears. I two would, old ears. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, these are the faces and the the regalia here is straight out of a Beckett play. But yet he still presents. He, he he's still got their sense of humanity. They look like real people. They're not they're not archetypes. They've got different personalities. They look alive. They look mm. like they're having fun, they're having the crack, they're having their tea. And Tony is also there as a presence and the, the vantage point and the angle he's photographed them speaks a lot to his own sense of humanity because he's not photographing them from on top. He's not making them look all gnarled. Yeah. He's photographing he, them as people. And so very he, much at their level. He's, at their yeah, level. He's down. <laughs> what is his obsession, if that's not too <laughs> hard a word or too ro- uh, harsh a word, with turkeys. There are so many turkey pictures in this collection. He, 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 I, well, let's tweet Christmas Turkey Market Mary's Lane Dublin 1991 as an example at RTE Arena to see it. I think it's typical of, t- of Tony's interest in 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 things that are about to disappear. Photography is mm. a very time-based medium. So he was drawn to street spectacles that were about to disappear. So in this case, it's the Christmas turkey markets, which now to our own health and safety concerned eyes looks med- almost medieval <laughs> yeah. because it's photographs of turkeys hanging in the streets or around the necks of street vendors or on the tops of cars. And it's just completely bizarre. But it is it is spectacular in its own way. So book and exhibition. Uh, book and exhibition, 112 images. We spent four years digitising Tony's entire archive, which is part of a new initiative to preserve contemporary artists' archives. Right, well, uh, the, the title of the exhibition is the title of the book indeed, The Light of the Day. And the exhibition is at the Photo Museum Ireland running until the 18th of February. And Tony O'Shea will be signing books on Saturday the 17th of December. Full information on the book and indeed the exhibition on uh, photomuseumireland.ie. Trish Lamb curator speaking with us this 